Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. So while researching some other episode recently, and I don't even remember what which one, uh, there are several that could have landed me here, I came across just a casual mention of Sonora Webster Carver. And I looked into her briefly, and then I had to resist jumping to work on her story at the time because I was already so far along in the other topic that I would have really made my life miserable to change over that late in the game. But I was enthralled by her story and a little bit trepidatious because it does involve animal trick acts that look very, very dangerous. It is, uh, the story is mostly heartbreak-free in that regard. There's there's one thing we'll mention at the end. Um, it was, however, incredibly dangerous, but that was primarily for the riders. Uh, and what we are talking about today is horse diving, which includes horses diving off of platforms. Again, it looks terrifying. Uh, we'll talk about that relationship with the animals and and their training and whatnot. And we're going to talk about not just horse diving, but probably the most famous horse diver of her time, certainly, possibly all time, and that is Sonora Webster Carver. But to talk about her, we actually first have to talk briefly about Doc Carver to begin with, to set the groundwork, um, because he invented this entertainment. Uh, and Doc Carver's story is a roller coaster. He, if you've done any reading about like Wild West shows, you've heard of him. His life was filled with a lot of adventure and a lot of wild tales, some of which are probably tall, but he genuinely did some very, very uh, surprising and perhaps bananas things. But we're going to give a very brief version of his life here. William Frank Carver was born in 1851 in Winslow, Illinois. And his childhood is pretty undocumented. The stories that he told about it really contradicted each other. Even biographies differ on what year he was born. They differ pretty wildly because Doc would sometimes claim to have been born not in 1851, but in 1840. Yeah, there are various reasons for that. Uh, Probably gave him some credibility early on in his life and he just ran with it. And then later on, there are discussions of of people saying, wow, you look amazing for your age. And he was like, thanks. Uh, but really, <laughs> he was 11 years younger than he was claiming to be. But the important part is that as an adult, Carver, who got the nickname Doc because he was trained as a dentist, became a skilled sharpshooter. And he toured the world in sharpshooting exhibitions and competitions. And he made a pretty decent living doing it. He also had a Wild West show with Buffalo Bill Cody for a time before the two men had a falling out. That is a whole story in and of itself. Uh, subsequent touring shows that Carver mounted on his own without Buffalo Bill were successful, but they ultimately fell apart for a couple of reasons. One was economic depression, which meant that people couldn't buy tickets, and also because it was discovered that Carver had actually been using kidnapped Native Americans in his act, and some of them he had just abandoned overseas. That's so many layers of So many layers. He wrote a play titled The Scout, which also toured after the shooting act ended, but once it wound down, he launched a new entertainment project, and that was using horses and water as spectacle. Doc Carver claimed the idea for horse diving had come to him in 1881 when he was crossing a bridge over the Platte River on horseback, and the bridge collapsed. As he and his horse fell into the river and survived, it occurred to him that he could turn that ability into a show, although he did not make it into one for another 13 years. 
Doc did include sort of a, a minimized stage version of his fall from that bridge in his performances of The Scout. But when it came to the larger scale dive show, Doc, who at that point was getting older and was heavier than would have been healthy for the horses to carry, was not one of the stunt riders. He focused instead on training the horses. And one of the skills that he really developed was getting a sense of which horses were game for this job and, according to him, even enjoyed it. He claimed that when he was doing the the short stage drops in the scout, which drops a horse into a, a small body of water, it was just a couple feet, but most of the horses could only be used once because even though that was a very short drop and it was handled, according to him, very safely, they were usually too frightened by the experience to do it again. But then he did discover one that not only seemed fine with it, but would literally walk back around and reset himself, ready to do that trick again without any urging, which gave him a sense that some horses actually seemed to enjoy it. Whether or not that's the case, we don't know. The first of Doc Carver's diving shows was held in Kansas City, Missouri. That was in the summer of 1894, and it was an immediate hit. He started touring, and he had the same success everywhere he went. People just flocked to the novelty of seeing horses dive into the water. So now we're going to get to Sonora Webster, who was born in Waycross, Georgia, on February 2nd, 1904. Her family was working class, and we honestly don't know a whole lot more about it than that. Um, I managed to locate some records on a genealogy site that indicated that her parents were Ula Marion Webster Sr. and Lila Gertrude Arnett Webster. But keep in mind, those sites are crowdsourced, so that's not what we would consider necessarily like a, um, a definite source we would use. Again, there's next to nothing of them. But we're going to talk a little bit more about her family in just a bit. From an early age, Sonora loved horses. When she was five, she tried to trade her newborn brother for a carriage horse named Sam that she had fallen in love with. This is where I fall in love with Sonora, because (laughs) when I was about that age, I tried to sell my little brother at a yard sale. Just because I thought money would be better than a brother, I guess. I don't know. I was five. She was wheeling and dealing. (laughs) Yeah. Sam's owner had made the offer of a trade in jest, and Sonora had actually gotten her baby brother out of his crib to take him to the neighbor for the trade when her parents caught her at what she was doing. She described her letdown at this deal falling apart as, quote, literally bursting with grief. I was not bursting with grief. My mother was just like, you know, you cannot sell your brother at the yard sale. (laughs) You were kicking the dirt, but not probably crying in your room. (laughs) Fortunately, living in Waycross gave her ample opportunities for time with horses, even without any nefarious trades of siblings involved. Livestock was often held at the railroad yards in Waycross as a stopping point, and she would visit every morning on her way to school just for a glimpse of the horses. Often she got to school late as a result of this and did not seem to care. She flunked first grade because of it. That sort of set a tone for her education. By the time she was in high school, she was routinely cutting classes to ride horses. She didn't finish school, not because of the horses, but because her mother had to leave Waycross to take care of her own ailing father, and that meant that Sonora had to look after her younger siblings. She wasn't doing very well in school anyway. Her grades were okay, but she was having other issues. She had been rejected by a boy that she had really fallen for, and she was super embarrassed about the whole thing and heartbroken, And the combination of those factors just made her very, very willing to drop out under the guise of responsibility to her siblings. Still, she did say later in life that she regretted not finishing school. 
information on Sonora's early life is pretty sparse, and Holly even found a source that indicated that she was an orphan. That's not the case, though. It is clear where the idea might have come from. She doesn't talk about her father at all in her autobiography, and her mother is never mentioned by her given name. She's just called Mother. She also fleetingly references, quote, conflicts in my parents' marriage once in her autobiography when she's talking about her own views on marriage, but that's really it. As we'll see in just a moment, she found an alternate father figure in her late teens who seems to have been a lot more important to her. Yeah, she had some issues with her mom. (laughs) Uh, We could talk more about some of those in our behind the scenes. But soon after Sonora left school, the family moved to Savannah. This was kind of on a whim of her mother's when she saw a listing for a home that sounded charming, and off they went. There is no mention, again, of her father, and it seems that her mother, at this point, was raising the kids entirely on her own. This was one of a series of spontaneous moves that the family had over the years. Sonora, whose siblings were, at this point, all school age, was desperate to strike out on her own largely because she was tired of her mother's desires determining her fate. It was actually Sonora's mother that found the route to freedom for her daughter in 1923. Right, so anytime you see any sort of abbreviated story of Sonora's life, it is often told that she saw the following listing in the Savannah paper and immediately went to see Doc Carver. And that ad read, Wanted. Attractive young woman who can swim and dive. Likes horses, desires to travel. See Dr. W.F. Carver, Savannah Hotel. She did see that ad, but it was her mother who had brought it to her attention. And according to Sonora's autobiography, she did not immediately jump at the idea. Her response to her mother suggesting that she would be perfect for this horse diving job was, quote, me, dive on a horse? Mother, you've lost your mind. She insisted that she did not want to meet Carver or any of the people in his company. <laughs> I, I, love, I love her. Mother, you've lost your mind. Uh, her mother's ongoing pestering, though, led Sonora to the Savannah Hotel one Wednesday evening, and she did meet with Dr. Carver, his son Alan, his daughter Lorena, and a stunt woman named Vivian who was working with the family at the time. Sonora thought Dr. Carver, who was 84 at this point, was, quote, the most distinguished man I had ever met. But even then, when Carver offered her a job on the spot, Sonora didn't take it. She turned him down. She explained the whole visit had just been to appease her mother and that she didn't see a life for herself as part of a traveling horse act. But instead of abandoning the thought entirely... Sonora Webster went to the fair and watched that diving horse act. And she was, in her own word, spellbound. She described the scene, quote, A girl in a red bathing suit, brown football helmet, and white sneakers sat on a railing at the top of the tower, looking intently down a steep ramp. In a moment, she gave a signal with her hand, and instantly there came the sound of a horse's hoofs hitting the runway. And as she galloped past, the girl on the railing jumped on. They drew up together at the head of the platform where there was a drop-off, and the horse stood for a moment like a beautiful statue. She hung for a moment at an almost perpendicular angle and then pushed away from the boards and lunged outward into space. For a split second, her form was imprinted on the night sky like a silhouette. Then her beautiful body arched gracefully over and down and plunged into the tank. We'll talk about how witnessing horse diving changed Sonora's mind and her life after we take a quick sponsor break. 
So after watching horse diving for herself, Sonora decided that she did, in fact, want to take Carver up on his offer. But by the time she came to this decision, the Carver show was getting ready to leave Savannah. The following morning, she dressed as quickly as she could, she skipped breakfast, and she rushed to the hotel in the hopes of intercepting Doc Carver and his company before they left town. And in her autobiography, she mentions she could never recall their exact conversation, but she knew she did not make clear to them that she wanted to join their show, and they kind of had some sort of talk, and then they left without her. Three months later, though, Doc Carver wrote her a letter restating his offer. Quote, if you still want to learn to ride the diving horses, reply at this address. So she did. And then she waited and waited and waited. And after several weeks, he appeared in person in Savannah and asked how soon Sonora could leave. She was given a salary of $50 a week, and that was more than triple what she had been earning as a department store bookkeeper in Savannah. Yeah, she had kind of been making a life for her own. She had moved out of the family house and into a boarding house. But this suddenly seemed like riches and I get to ride horses. Um, So she soon found herself alongside the rest of Carver's crew in Jacksonville, Florida. That's where they were spending the winter months prepping for the next season. And she saw how they cared for the horses. Doc's son, Alan, was in charge of their day-to-day care and managing the groomers that they hired. Doc's daughter Lorena was a trick rider, but she had injured a muscle in her leg and she was not ready to perform again yet. Sonora had to learn how to ride bareback, which was entirely new to her and very challenging. It left her bruised all over her legs. And when she got smacked by a horse moving its head and got a bloody nose, Doc Carver made it clear that she was the one at fault. She really bristled at that, but she took the lesson to always be careful. So she continued to exercise the horses and practice riding and develop her relationships with the animals. It was a while, though, before she got to the diving part. When they finally started touring, they would have to set up their entire diving platform and pool system in each location. So they would dig out tanks from the ground that were 45 feet long, 25 feet wide, and 11 feet deep. Doc Carver and his son had experimented to find that right depth. It sounds so shallow to me, but uh, their experiments when they had tried deeper pools led to them discovering that the horses couldn't really get to touch bottom on those. They were a little too buoyant, and they did better if they could get into the water, kind of hit the bottom with their hooves, and then push off to come up out of the water head first. Otherwise, they might roll in the water and get disoriented. So their standard tank size, which they had developed, was lined with canvas, and it held an estimated 35,000 gallons of water. Apparently, some of the the, um, the humans also would just swim in it for exercise. They also included an incline on one end, so once the horses got out of the water or righted themselves in the water, they could essentially walk right up that ramp and out of the pool when they were done with the stunt. Above the tank was a tower, which reached 40 feet in height. It had a long ramp at the back for the horses to make their ascent and a ladder for the divers. The divers didn't mount the horses until they were right on top of the tower before the dive. The tower also had to be lit since they gave shows day and night, but they also had to position that lighting really carefully to prevent reflections on the water, which would scare the horses. All of this digging and construction and lighting was overseen by Doc and Alan, but it was always at the expense of the fair or event that had booked the show. Doc made sure that that was always in the contract. It does sound like quite a lot of work and money. (laughs) 
it does. There were uh, some of the discussions she talks about in her book was that they weren't really making that much money because even though they had made these arrangements, they spent so much money traveling and getting the horses and all of this equipment moved around that by the time they got to their next destination and their next booking, they were almost out of cash. Sonora also had to learn to just dive herself because sometimes they included trick dives in their shows as well as diving with the horses. There was a lower platform on the tower that was 12 feet up instead of going right from that 40 feet uh, platform. And that was used for both humans and horses to learn their diving and practice. And part of Sonora's training was being taught that she would initially, when she started diving horses, always feel as though the horse was going to somersault forward as it leaned forward on its ramp off the diving board, but that it was not going to and she needed to resist the urge to react physically to it. Soon, she was diving with the horses, with Alan, who she called Al, as her coach. She later wrote, quote, As Al coached me, the odds between me and the hospital seemed to get smaller. She kept practicing, and soon she was deemed ready for a full-height jump from the 40-foot platform. But she didn't train at that height. Doc Carver had decided her first high-platform jump would be in front of an audience. Sonora describes going kind of numb as she walked to the tower and started climbing for that jump, which was in front of thousands of spectators in Durham, North Carolina, but also feeling completely confident and at ease once she finally got up there. She later wrote of that first high dive, quote, I felt his muscles tense as his big body sprang out and down and then had an entirely new feeling. It was a wild, almost primitive thrill that comes only with complete freedom of contact with the earth. Then I saw the water rushing up at me, and the next moment, we were in the tank. We went in so smoothly that the wetness seemed the only proof of landing. She also wrote of horses diving in general, quote, The physical, wholly sensual pleasure that comes with a drop from the tower down to the tank is a pleasure totally lacking in psychological or philosophical meaning. It's the sheer exhilaration of being entirely free of the earth as well as everything human. To me, no other physical sensation can be so acute, so deeply intoxicating. Sonora started giving multiple shows a day as she was the only rider. The team split up, and Al took two of the horses onto another booking so they could bring in more money. Doc Carver trained another young woman to send along with that group while he and Sonora stayed in Durham, since Lorena was still unable to ride. Once Lorena was fully healed, she literally got back on the horse as the subrider was not as good as Al and Doc had hoped. Yeah, the person they had sent along to that other booking, they determined, did not really have the nerve to do this job long term, so... Lorena went to meet up with her brother. At this point, Sonora was earning $125 a week during the busy touring season, and she was often interviewed and photographed by press. She made sure she would later say to not get a big head about it and to remember that they were really there for the act and not for her. Throughout their time working together, it seems that Doc took on a sort of taskmaster, fatherly role in Sonora's life, and she was really devoted to him. And this was even something that played out in the press, where Sonora was billed as Sonora Carver, and reporters interviewed her so-called father, Dr. Carver. Doc Carver would spin all kinds of tales about how nervous he had been to let his little girl ride, but he couldn't keep her away from horses. So no doubt this was all intended to stir up interest around this idea of a worried dad and his daredevil daughter to sell tickets. 
Yeah, the first of these articles I found, I got really excited because it they talk about her father being nervous, and I'm like, they found her father, and it was like, oh no, this was a ruse. <laughs> Uh, as they toured, Doc, who was in his 80s, needed her more and more just to handle many of the tasks of everyday life on the road. He seemed like he just grew really attached to her and wanted her around to help him with things. And he always wanted her to travel with him. Throughout 1927, his health had really declined. They had reluctantly gotten him to go to the hospital uh, at one point while he and Sonora were traveling, which he did not like, uh, and eventually got out of and made clear he probably wasn't going to follow doctor's orders. And on August 31st of 1927, he died after he and Sonora had met up with Al and Lorena in Sacramento for a booking. And a lot of his obituaries list Sonora Carver as his daughter. There had already been some discussion of Alan taking over his father's roadshow, so the transition in that regard was pretty smooth. In accordance with Doc's wishes, they didn't pause their performance schedule. They shipped his body to Winslow, Illinois to be interred while they went on for the Sacramento contract. Under Al's stewardship, the act changed a little bit. So, whereas Doc had always insisted on fairly conservative, plain red swimsuits with the most modest cuts available, no adornment, and plain bathrobes, Al let the performers choose their own outfits. So Sonora and Lorena added different colored suits with some spangles stitched onto them and more glamorous robes with embroidered backs. There's a great description where she talks about Lorena giving her a robe that she had embroidered with a peacock on the back and how much she loved it, and it felt like the most glamorous garment she had ever worn. They also started traveling by car instead of by train, although initially the horses still needed to be shipped by train while they sought out the perfect trailer for them. When Lorena decided to retire from performing to manage the second touring group, Sonora's sister Arnett joined as her replacement. And this is something that Sonora really thought long and hard about. She knew the dangers involved with this work. They had never had a horse get injured, but riders definitely had. Everything from bloody noses to fractured bones and teeth being knocked out. And a stuntman from the movie industry had begged Doc Carver to let him try out horse diving and had actually broken his neck and died on his first dive. But Sonora also knew that Arnett craved adventure in the same way that she did. She ultimately decided that at least if Arnett was with her, she could teach her how to be as safe as possible and might save her from making more dangerous choices with her life. Al also acquired a paint horse named Red Lips during this time that was known for being incredibly obstinate. This is another great story in her book about the the farmer that owned him being like, I'm not selling this horse. He might be Satan. (laughs) He had apparently tried to sell him and he kept getting returned. Uh, Sonora and Al, though, both fell in love with this horse and they learned to negotiate with his temperament. They even got him a baby goat as a pet to make him happy, which seemed to work. And Sonora's devotion to this particular horse would end up costing her greatly, which we'll talk about in a bit. Uh, He was a good diver, but he was a little bit dangerous because he liked to do what they call nose diving, meaning that he went into the water at an almost vertical angle, straight in, rather than at a slant like most of the horses. Simultaneously, the relationship shifted between Al and Sonora. They had worked together for years, but once they were working alone together, they got closer and closer over time and they fell in love. She later wrote, quote, Al says he loved me from the beginning and that he had told himself soon after we met, someday I'm going to marry her, which is very flattering, but from my viewpoint, open to argument. 
she's pretty funny. Uh, Al did eventually openly profess his love for Sonora, and that actually made her feel kind of conflicted. She really liked him, too, but she had also seen bad marriages. This is the one time she mentions her parents' conflicted marriage. And even in good marriages, it seemed to her like the love eventually withered or that having kids created this constant financial stress of having to provide for them. She liked being single, and she told Al as much, but eventually she did agree to marry him. She was still a little bit unsure about it, even as she said her vows, but after the quick morning ceremony that they had, Al told her, quote, I'll see to it that you're never sorry. And then they got back to work. They actually had a show to do that afternoon. A week later, Al gave Sonora a present that she said many brides would not have wanted, but was, quote, the perfect one for me a contract for a season's engagement at the Atlantic City Steel Pier. This meant not only more stability and less constant travel, but also a custom-built tank and tower. The humans also had actual dressing rooms, and the horses had dedicated stall space. Arnett's first summer of horse diving had not gone spectacularly well. They had sent her home, but she begged to come to Atlantic City to see if there wasn't something else she could do. And Sonora and Al finally acquiesced to her repeated requests on this. Sonora found our network as part of a swimming, diving, and water skiing act that was also contracted to appear at the pier. And for the next several summers, the sisters got to work together in Atlantic City, and they actually saw people that intersect with some of our other shows, like Johnny Weissmiller and John Philip Sousa, as they came through on bookings as well. In 1931, Sonora was performing a jump with her horse Red Lips, When he went more aggressively vertical than usual, she was afraid that leaning forward to tuck her head next to his neck, which they normally did for safety, would cause him to just roll forward really dangerously. So she held her weight back to keep their balance. And as she later wrote, quote, I was successful, but that position caused me to strike the water flat on my face instead of diving in at the top of my head. In the excitement of the moment, I had failed to close my eyes quickly enough, and as we hit, I felt a dull, stinging sensation. She stayed on the horse's back and rode him out of the water, and although it had been rough, she thought she was okay. But back in her dressing room, she told Al, quote, I feel as if I were trying to peer through fog. Al wanted her to go to a doctor, but instead she went back out for the second show and two shows the next day. Things seemed to be getting better, and she wasn't in any pain, so she thought she was fine. But as those foggy patches disappeared, she found at first that her vision had a yellow cast to it. But she still kept riding, because again, there was no pain. And then several days later, she had what she described as a smoky gray curtain to her vision, which finally caused her to acknowledge her own fear over what was happening. But she still rode again that night. She wrote, quote, I was also protecting my pride. No one had ever had to take my place on my horse, and no one was going to. When she finally went to the doctor, she was diagnosed with detached retinas. The doctor hoped that he could save the sight in her right eye, but he was frank that her left eye was beyond help. She had surgery, but the results were not what they had hoped for. They tried additional procedures, but had the same result. Sonora's remaining sight got worse, not better, and she became completely blind as she described it, quote, enveloped in folds of soft black velvet. We will talk about how Sonora came through this period of convalescence, which was really difficult for someone who was so constantly active. But first, we're going to take a quick break for a word from the sponsors that keep Stuff You Missed in History Class going. (music) 
her autobiography, Sonora describes, really frankly, her mental journey during her time convalescing and eventually accepting what was happening to her. She has this really uh, long description of how the word blind started appearing in her mind. First, it's just a pinpoint of light that she refused to acknowledge and over several days, eventually becoming larger and legible. And when she finally acknowledged this word, she experienced what she described as a sense of relief at finally naming her situation, but also panic. And then, as she put it, a voice came to her that said, quote, you know you'll never see again. Will you let it ruin your life? She said no to that. Uh, and then several days later, she heard what she believed to be the voice of God saying, quote, don't be afraid, you will see. She interpreted that to mean a greater mental vision and not the return of her actual eyesight. And she spent several days assessing her relationship with the world around her in this new state. She wrote, quote, I decided that the best strategy I could adopt would be to treat my blindness as if it were a minor detail rather than a major catastrophe. I would thus be turning the tables on my handicap, in fact, striking at its very potency. I was careful, however, not to delude myself. The way would not be easy. The independence that had always been part of her personality for her entire life really came into play here. She very quickly grew tired of Al and her sister Arnett trying to take care of her. She felt like she was being babied, and she hated it. So she just started trying to do things herself to see how it went, and she started with bathing, which she was really proud the first time she was able to, like, manage getting bathed herself. She was like, this is not something I can't do. She also found that she didn't want any help at all soon, and the only thing that she let Al do for her was cut her meat at meals. She actually felt fine doing it, but it made him really, really nervous to watch her with a knife, so she eventually gave in and just let him handle it. And she also went along with his desire to hire a cook for them. Just the casual socialization of life was this whole other fight, though. She found the way she was treated was really frustrating, and she wrote about it, quote, "...the attitude of overprotection toward the blind, not infrequent among the sighted, often can be more of a handicap than blindness itself. And one of the most damaging aspects is the continual effort to help the blind person physically at the expense of the blind person's feelings." She lived in her head a lot in her initial days without vision, Learning Braille was something that actually really delighted her. She talks about the tutor that someone found for her being just an absolute uh, breath of fresh air during this time because it meant that she could read to pass the time instead of only being in her thoughts or also having to constantly explain to people that really she was perfectly able to dress herself without assistance. When Atlantic City chose to renew the contract with Al for another summer, Sonora's first reaction was frustration she would be left at home and unable to be part of this, and this was something that had been her source of joy for years. And then she pitched the idea of diving again to her doctor, and to everybody's surprise, he said it was okay as long as she wore a helmet. Sonora knew that as long as she could get on the horse, the rest of it would be relatively easy. Yeah, at that point, wearing helmets had kind of fallen out of favor, but she's like, I'll go back to the helmet. That's not a problem. Uh, she was super excited that she could even possibly do this. So first, she practiced climbing to get used to the ladder again. And Al rigged a rope that ran from the dressing room out to the tower, so she had a guide if she needed it. She talks about how she was too prideful to ever actually put her hand on the rope. She would just feel the fringe of her robe hitting it, and that's what she used to guide herself. 
Uh, she wrote, quote, I felt that if I rode well, I needed no excuse, and that if I needed an excuse, I had no business riding. I tried in every possible way to play down the melodramatics, refusing to allow any publicity. Finally, in June of 1932, she had all her equipment and practiced walking to the tower and climbing to the platform, and she was ready to try her first jump. The days leading up to that first jump, multiple acts that were part of the pier show had all had accidents, including a fatality in the trapeze act that had taken the life of a woman who had really been one of Sonora's close friends. When the primary dive rider was suddenly called away, Sonora felt like she had to fill her spot, and she put aside the fears that had been brought up by all those other accidents around her. Al told her she could call off the show, but she insisted that she thought she was ready. Yeah, this was like a super strange time because these were all acts that had been contracted year after year and they were all, normally they were in like clockwork, incredibly safe. So it was very strange that several of them had accidents clustered right together. But she made her first dive on that same horse that had led to her injury, Red Lips, and that first dive went perfectly. Sonora immediately returned to her old performing schedule and started making multiple dives each day. And she did this for 11 more years. She was very frank that some of her dives had problems. It was not always as great as that first return effort. And there were actually four times she missed the horse completely when she tried to mount. Initially, no one but her family and fellow performers even knew that she had lost her sight. The audience was completely clueless. She had learned to basically turn to them and wave like it was completely normal. They didn't know that she couldn't see them. Eventually, word did get out that Sonora was blind, and a reporter convinced her to let him write a story about it, and this led to a new path for her. She had initially really hated the idea of publicity around her blindness, but soon she realized that her story might help other people cope in similar situations, and her feelings about it really changed entirely. Yeah, she, after that, was very open about it and perfectly willing to talk about it with the press. But Sonora Webster Carver gave her last show in 1942. At that point, they were not uh, at the pier at Atlantic City anymore. They had started touring again. But World War II had made it really, really hard to get the workers that they needed in all of their various locations to maintain the horses and dig the tank and set up the tower. So they decided that it was really time to retire. Sonora described it as all of them, Red Lips and her and Al, being put out to pasture. Red Lips lived out the remainder of his life in Houston with friends of the Carvers. The Carvers relocated to New Orleans, Louisiana. They didn't really retire, though. Al took a job as a motel clerk, and Sonora became a typist at the Lighthouse for the Blind. Arnett married a man named Jacob French, who she had met at the pier in 1929, and she moved to Pennsylvania. In 1961, Sonora published an autobiography titled A Girl and Five Brave Horses. I used it as one of my resources on this, and it is an absolute delight of a read because she was a fantastic storyteller and she was very funny. In 1979, after working as both a typist and an advocate for the blind through Lighthouse for the Blind, Carver retired. And in 1991, a Disney film was made that was based on her life story called Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken, which is how I absolutely already knew who Sonora Carver was when Holly told me she was considering this episode. According to her sister Arnett, though, when Sonora went to the movie, she was really disappointed in how they changed things around. 
She told Arnett, quote, the only thing true in it is that I rode diving horses, I went blind, and I continued to ride for another 11 years. And part of what bothered her so much was having her return to horse diving after the accident portrayed as this huge challenge and this fear that she had to overcome when really that had been all she had wanted to do and it made her really happy to be able to get back into it. Sonora also lived long enough to see horse diving finally end as an entertainment in the 1970s due to animal welfare concerns. Well before Sonora Webster joined Doc Carver's show, the group was already under a lot of scrutiny from the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. According to Sonora's account, veterinarians from the SPCA would stop by to inspect the horses, but they were always satisfied with their condition and their care. At one point on the tour, this landed Doc Carver in court when an order had been issued to stop the performances until an investigation could be made. Doc took one of the horses right to the courthouse to have the judge examine it, and the case was thrown out. There was also a brief effort to bring a diving mule show to the Steel Pier in the 1990s. That was quickly shut down after protests over animal rights. People who participated in horse diving are really quick to point out the level of care that the Carver horses always received, and that while there were human injuries and even the fatality we mentioned earlier, the horses did not get hurt during dives, and they would quickly remove a horse from their training program if it appeared to have any nervousness or reluctance about jumping. There was, though, something we should point out, which is that one horse fatality took place in 1927, when Doc Carver was still alive, but not on site. One of the booked venues insisted on using the open water as the landing instead of a tank. And without Doc around to say no, the crew went along with it. And the horse made the jump just fine, but it got disoriented in this open body of water. And it swam in a panic into deeper water where it became exhausted and drowned. Carver was, by Sonora's account, both angry and heartbroken at this and ended the contract and never worked with that venue again. Yeah, she describes in her book that she had never seen him that upset and never did again. Uh, But regardless of whether the horses in Carver's show were happy or not, the time for animal acts of this nature is clearly past, as most animal protection groups denounce the use of animals in entertainment. The future of circuses, for example, is often in the news, and it's likely animal-free or switching to virtual animals created using projection, uh, which has opened up an entirely new area of artistry. If you go hunting for any of those videos online, they're quite cool. So a resurgence of horse diving seems entirely unlikely. But you can, if you want to see it, find a couple of videos online that show Carver and other stunt riders horse diving. Sonora Webster Carver died in September of 2003, in Pleasantville, New Jersey, at the age of 99. Do you have some listener mail for us? I do. I actually have several pieces of listener mail because they're all related to Duke Kahanamoku and they're all pretty short. Um, The first one, I will say, uh, is from our listener Susan, who writes Aloha, the -the behind-the-scenes episode for Duke Kahanamoku where you talk about the This Is Your Life host pronouncing Hawaii with the W sounding like a V. You do know that in the Hawaiian language, the V sound is the correct way to say the W in the word Hawaii, right? Because the mistake is not educating people about the Hawaiian language and not the host using the correct Hawaiian pronunciation of Hawaii. No grimace needed. Uh, It sounds so much the way like someone would say a Bavarian V to me that I think that's why I I recoiled a bit. I do know that does sometimes sub out, but I didn't realize that that was normally 
the preferred pronunciation of Hawaii. Uh, but this has, of course, um, inspired me to start taking Hawaiian lessons in Duolingo. Nice. <laughs> I have not seen the This Is Your Life that we were talking about. Um, and so I had interpreted it as like the cringy overpronunciation things people do. Like It as is though, to me. Yeah, as though we were talking about Paris and we kept saying Paris every time. Like that's how I interpreted it. That is your exactly invention. how it vibes to me. But again, yeah. I'm not a, I'm certainly not a, a, a Hawaiian speaker. So uh, I don't know if she has seen that footage or not, but. Um, uh, if she says I don't have to cringe, that's a huge relief. Um, the <laughs> the um, next one is from our listener, Alana. Again, it's fairly short. Uh, <laughs> it made me laugh, so... Uh, and it's about laughing, so that's great. She writes, Hi, Holly and Tracy. Thank you for the two-parter and mini on the great Duke Kahanamoku. I have to let you know, I was listening to you while driving, and when you mentioned the way he messed with journalists about the pronunciation of his name, I had to pull over because I was laughing so hard. I cried, like sobbing tears, and kept starting up again just imagining their faces. I haven't like laughed like that in at least a year, so thank you. I also love that he woke up from a nap, then a few minutes later won an Olympic race, when after I wake up, I am useless for about half an hour. What a man. Uh, thank you for such a good time. I've been a very long time listener and you never disappoint. Uh, that delighted me. I have uh, anytime laughing makes you pull over and thank you for pulling over for safety. Makes me pleased. Yep. Um, our last one is from Christine who writes, after listening to last week's episodes, I wonder if it's possible Duke had narcolepsy. I don't think so because he didn't seem to have trouble staying awake when he was like doing something. Uh, normally, people with narcolepsy just nod off when they are not planning to. Uh, yeah. He just seemed to be much more of an advantageous napper. Like, I got a minute. I can lie down and nap. <laughs> yeah, the the only nap in that story that's that uh, raised my eyebrows in that regard at all was the, the falling asleep underwater one. Um, yeah. Which still, to me, was more about his, like, his comfort level in the water than yes. something that, that was potentially a, a, an illness. Yeah, he seemed to be so completely relaxed that when he was, as you recall in that story, he was inspecting the pilings for piers underwater and had a counterpart above ground that would go to the end of the pier and they would communicate back and forth and then that person would run to the next one. And I think he thought, I'm faster than him. I have a couple minutes. <laughs> I'm just going to rest my eyes. <laughs> yeah, just as a as a general rule on the show, we, we also just don't, try not to armchair diagnose people because we're not doctors. And right. even if we were doctors, the person is not here to examine. So uh, I I did a little digging after this email to see if there had been any, like, medical historians who had made that conjecture, and I definitely did not find any. No. Uh, yeah, no one in his family ever mentions, like, this being, like, there being a moment where they're like, how is he asleep? They just knew that he would curl up and go to sleep right. whenever he felt like he had a couple minutes. So, um... Uh, thank you, though, for your question. If you would like to write to us about Duke Kahanamoku or any other things, boy, I sure like those stories, um, you can do so at History Podcast at iHeartRadio.com. You can also find us on social media at Missed in History pretty much everywhere. And if you would like to subscribe to the podcast and you haven't gotten around to it yet, no worries. You can do that right now if you wish. You can subscribe on the iHeartRadio app at Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you're listening to podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. 
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.